Hey, this is Daryl. Thank you for listening. I've got three things I want to tell you about today's episode. First, it's an episode of two parts, right? The first half of today's show is all about Sunderland Till I Die, the Netflix documentary, episodes two and three. That's the Josh Madger episode. And it's also the uh, Let's Try and Sell Out the Stadium episode. The second part of today's show, if you're not interested in Sunderland Till I Die, second part of today's show is listener questions. Timestamps are in the show notes if you want to find out how to skip ahead. Okay, thing number two I want to tell you. Today's episode of the Total Sock Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated and productive at home, Remarkably Remote is here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find Remarkably Remote on smart speakers if you have those, or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app, like the one you're listening to this show on. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash T-I-P-S. Third thing I want to tell you, I want to make sure that you know that Soccer 101, a spin-off show, the spin-off show to the Total Soccer Show, we are running a series of classic match reviews. Uh, We've done three US national team games, and the most recent episode is the 2005 Champions League final, Liverpool versus Milan. You know the game we're talking about. Okay, thank you for listening to my three things. Now, on with the show. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who always meets his sales targets. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello, or else, it seems. It's a very sinister meet him or else. Yeah, that's or how else it goes. We put, we put all your stuff in a box and send you out to your <laughs> car. Yeah. Uh, we've got listener questions to talk about later on today. But first, we are here to discuss Sunderland Till I Die, or STID, as I call it, um, episodes two and three. Yeah, the the I is very, very important as a letter. Otherwise, uh, it's an entirely different acronym. Oh, actually, in England, those are called STIs. Oh, okay. Well, there you yeah. go. <laughs> so they, they're, they're making sure to get both. Right, Sunderland till I die. That seems, that, seems, I die. that seems relevant for a, a documentary about a club that's relegated twice in two seasons. Uh-huh. Mistakes were made. Mistakes uh-huh. were made. Yeah, all counts. Actually, can we start there with yeah. the concept of inviting cameras in mm-hmm. to follow your season? I don't know if we've talked about this before, but... Um, do you remember when Sunderland got relegated way, way back? It was like in the 90s. They had a mm-hmm. very bad season. I mean, no, were, but yes, yes. They invited a documentary crew in and got relegated. This club has previous of inviting cameras in and things going wrong. And they, I guess, didn't learn from it because that is sort of my understanding of the first season, right? Is that they've been relegated, but there's this expectation that like, oh, we're going to rise from the ashes and we're going to go yeah. right back to the Premier League and you're going to be here documenting how we get it all right and turn it all around. And mm-hmm. then the opposite of that occurs. And so is this maybe the third iteration of that, I guess, of now uh, Stuart Donald is thinking, well, this time we're going to get it right and you'll be here to see the actual turnaround. Well, it's no spoiler to say that Sunderland at least don't get relegated to the fourth tier of English football. They don't. In this That's season good. of Sunderland Till I Die. So in that sense, this is the most successful season Sunderland oh have gosh. ever had documented. 
Wow. That's uh, that's something. <laughs> that's something. It sure is something. All right, episodes two and three essentially mm-hmm. cover what the the rise of Josh Madger, mm-hmm. um, who I've seen described as Netflix Messi, um, <laughs> his expiring contract. Yeah. Um, and in episode three, we also cover um charlie's the managing director's uh, mission to try and sell as many tickets as he can for the big boxing day game yep. i want to start with a complaint though taylor sure it's a bit of praise for the show but it's also a complaint i here's my argument i think this show is very bingeable because mm-hmm. they're very good at having the end of the episode act or have like a big cliffhanger or yeah. teaser right at the end of every episode they kind of trick us between episodes two and three because oh, episode yeah. two ends with uh, Josh Marger looks like he's on the move and mm-hmm. you get, click click next episode, play it up next, play next, because you're going to see what happens to Josh Marger. And then they leave you hanging for a whole episode, basically, right? There's a bit of a diversion to Charlie's quest to sell all those tickets. Um, and then we go back to Josh Marger again at the end of episode three. They use the same cliffhanger twice, essentially. Yeah, um, I, I will say I have watched ahead. Uh, and spoiler alert, you do not get strung along in the next episode. They deal with that fairly quickly. Okay, for, well, I did actually because it was auto playing the next yeah. episode after five seconds. <laughs> That's what I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I saw the the country he was in at the mm-hmm. beginning of the next episode, put it that yep. way. Also, I just, I know what happened to Josh Marger. So there's, which, that. Which, there's that as well. But listeners, our listeners may not, right? So we won't spoil anything. Uh, we don't, but since you've said like the country that he goes to, we can go ahead and just spoil that it's not England. Uh, we know that he's not signing a new deal, so we know he will move. So I don't think that's too big of a spoiler. But it did feel watching, because I've watched these episodes uh, twice now. I remember in, this is a weird way to explain this, but in The Dark Knight, when there's like Lao, spoilers for The Dark Knight, like Lao goes back to China or Hong Kong and they're like, we're never going to be able to get him. And like, but the Batman can. And I was like, he's not going to go get him. Oh, he does. Oh, he goes and gets him. And I remember in this You know episode, why? Because China's big box office. Exactly. Good point, my friend. Uh, but in this one, when, uh, who's the, uh, Richard Hill, the head of football operations, says like his agent has previous with taking players abroad. I was like, come on, he's going to like another, like he's going to a championship team. What are you talking about? He's going to Tottenham. Mm-hmm. You mentioned him scouting him nine times. Now I understand why they uh, laid that groundwork. And then ironically, Tottenham could have done with him. Yes. Harry Kane's true. injury was a season and a half away, but they could have mm-hmm. done with Josh Madger in reserve. They, they certainly could have. <laughs> that was, I think, some of the most compelling footage we've seen so far was the sort of setting the stage for how important Josh Madger has become. But then yep. there's that one interview with him, which is oh, awkward yes. and amazing and incredible and cringeworthy all at once. I, there, I have a lot of complaints about this documentary, but this interview with Josh Madger, yeah. I think, is a magnificent piece of documentary filmmaking. Because yes. it's in the air, right? It's in the air that we know that you're thinking about moving. And the audience knows, because when they're doing the edit, they know that they've just shown that conversation with mm-hmm. you know Stuart Donald and Richard Hill, and they're talking about, we, we think they're up to something, we think the agent has a plan to move him. And then you've got Josh Madger saying, oh, I don't really read all the transfer speculation. And he can't help having that cheeky little, like, uh, Drew Barrymore half a grin coming out the well, side of one side of his face, right? Exactly. And then, and then they zoom in on his uh, nervous finger tapping, which I think no one knows. He, he thinks no one knows he's doing. But it's a great decision to uh, sort of uh, pan the camera down and zoom in on his, uh, his nervous fingers. But don't you think, see, this is where I, got, I, I was a, not confused, but I was just like, he has to have noticed that, right? Because the camera pans down and zooms in on his hand. 
Like, don't you think that no. you... He's a 20-year-old professional See, footballer. He's not a camera operator. That was the thing that I thought was most telling in this one. And it's a great... I think we've talked about this previously, but the importance of silence. And the interviewer says, mm-hmm. like, well, there's been some speculation. And he gives them a... He, he, uh, he does a couple different things. Number one, uh, from the league, he does the Ruxin of repeats the question to buy himself time. Transfer <laughs> rumors. Uh, that happens. So we know Josh Maggio watches the mm-hmm. league. And then I'm going to do a bunch of references here, apparently, because then uh, a la Paul F. Tompkins, he immediately breaks eye contact, which is a good way to not look guilty at all. Uh, <laughs> and then he kind of gives a couple cliche answers. And this is where I think the, the documentary crew is excellent. They don't say anything. They just mm-hmm. keep filming. And he gets more uncomfortable and keeps trying to fill the silence. And in trying to fill it, he says more cliched stuff and then has awkward laughs and then feels awkward about feeling awkward. So tries to say another thing. But that just makes him more uncomfortable. And it becomes this sort of downward spiral of like, you thought you were kind of concealing this and being clever maybe in the beginning and by the end it's like really clear that you have given things away here's the secret to the power of silence Mm -hmm. Uh, the power of silence when someone gives you an answer that's unsatisfactory when you don't respond back the Mm -hmm. power of silence is the silent saying your answer was unsatisfactory sir i'm going to need more yeah and that's what that's what the documentary crew did here and he really does. He gives them the, my head's just focused on football. I'm just focused yep. on my football. And he, then he, and he does the, the always lovely and never helpful, well, I'm here right now. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> great. <laughs> that is an indicator, I would say. <laughs> Thanks, Buddha. <Yeah. laughs> There's also the, the, the absolute killer line is right at the end where he says, that's football, isn't it? That's yeah. the type of thing you say when you, when mm-hmm. you sort of betray a club and move. Not betray, but, you know, disappoint a team and move on somewhere else. Yeah, and, and I did think there were uh, some of the cuts to Maja in this one uh, because that, like, that is him sort of concluding that one with us being like, that feels like he's kind of telling us what's happening. But it also begins this interview after we have uh, uh, Stuart Donald say, if Josh Maja leaves us, uh, we're going to look like a bunch of numpties. And then immediately cuts <laughs> to him and is sort of like, me? Leave? No. And then they also, uh, there's another one where they're talking about staff, which I'm sure we'll get to later on, and kind of some of the issues and how they feel like people aren't on the same page and and aren't on board. And I think Charlie says, like, look, if people aren't on board at a certain point, we're just going to have to decide to move on. And it immediately cuts to in-game footage of Josh Maja scoring a goal. And it's like, huh, I wonder what they could possibly be connecting here. I didn't pick up on that, but you're saying they're drawing parallels between uh, the staff and Josh Maja, who's, you know, playing staff. Yeah, I mean, the episode ends with Josh Maggio, like having substituted out walking into the locker room uh like like sort of like not really by himself i think he's with like a, a trainer or something like that but he's not talking he's walking away and then we see basically sophie carrying her box to the car i think it's pretty much telling us that she's been sacked and he's on his way out interesting that's the end of episode three right? yes um, mm-hmm. i want to i want to stay on josh Maggio a little more just sure. because he's definitely become like a star of the team right and he's popular around town did you did you get the significance of him being asked to turn on the christmas lights in in town no so that's like a big honor is when you become the person who is asked to turn on the Christmas lights at the start of the festive season um, in England. It's like a, you know, a local celebrity is usually asked to come and be the person that flips the switch and turns on the lights because mm. you're the one that's like starting the festive season. And, and that's where they say like, oh, like everybody's like the team's doing well. Everybody's into the team again. It's all very exciting. Yes. And, I, and I just felt like I feel like this is the the beginning of the sort of uh, the the montage in the movie that leads to the like downfall. Um, yeah, and, and I, I, I did. I quite because I've got complaints about this documentary mm-hmm. about how sort of it's almost like reality TV ish and they're sort of mm-hmm. going for their drama. It's a bit soap opera, soap opera ish. It's almost like the hills, you know. What I mean? um, but I think there were really human moments like Josh Madger being thrust into the spotlight of being yeah. the most popular player in Sunderland 
and not really being all that good with handling no. the sudden celebrity. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he's not very yeah. comfortable with all those people giving him that adulation as he flicks the switch. And there's that great bit of footage where he's saying, um, I don't have to give a speech, do I? No, no, I don't want to give a speech, right? And and then you contrast that with Luke O'Neill, who is, you know, mm-hmm. not a big star at all. It, we opened the episode, the first episode of the season with uh, one of the fans asking him who he is. Yep. <laughs> do you remember that? He's like, hey, I'm Luke. Um, and then you see Luke O'Neill, like, you know, he's giving all those high fives at, at the um, over the gate to, to those mm-hmm. kids. So it's a real contrast of like how how prepared young players are to handle celebrity. Yeah, and and I felt like with that in mind, I felt sort of bad in that moment for Josh Maja uh, because yeah, I think at sure, this time, same, absolutely he, the same. I think he's like nineteen or twenty at this point. He either has yeah. just turned twenty or is still nineteen. But I mean, he's being forced into the situation, and obviously, it's kind of of his own doing. But he gets all those questions. I think he says like, "No, I'm staying. I'm here. I'm here." And like, you kind of have to do that because what's oh, he, he tells do? That, old, that nice old lady? He yeah. tells her I'll be here next year. Exactly. And yeah. I think like you have to do that in the moment. My, my wife was very confused about like, "Well, no, he's staying then, right?" He told her he's staying, and I was like, "No, this is harsh to say, but like, she doesn't matter to him. Like he like, and she does. I know that sounds harsh, but it's like she's." Not not the press she's not a journalist or a reporter yeah. or somebody from the club she's a person who he wants to like him but he's gonna move on and like it doesn't really matter what he says to her yeah. like she'll report it. she might she might have a newspaper called granny black cats yeah. grannyblackcats.com well, i mean this is the thing that happens though right like i have been desperate uh when there have been transfer sagas about a player that i care about leaving the club that i support and you'll get those like my my nan like met him at an event he said he's staying and everybody <laughs> buys into that and gets really excited and that's kind of how this goes <laughs> but Christian i just Ronaldo so stayed at manchester united right Honestly, dude, I I have that in my notes. We can talk about that in a second. It really does. There are some parallels here. Uh, But in in this one, like, it also, and I kind of wish they went a little bit deeper on this. Like, Onion talks about how, like, you kind of have to do a lot of stuff on your own and how it can be really isolating. But, like, imagine being in a situation where you basically have to lie to, like, an entire town. Yeah. And and you can't really be honest. It would be so, it would be so difficult. And you would feel it would have an emotional drain on you. And yeah. I get why he kind of wants out after that. Uh, but, <laughs> I, but I did feel some sympathy for him in this one. That said, to your point about Ronaldo, I remember when Ronaldo was like very, very strongly like being linked with Madrid and it felt like it was going to happen. And that was right when Wayne Rooney like pledged his loyalty to Manchester United. And that felt a bit like Onion in the situation of like, <laughs> yeah, that's great. I get that you love the club and that's awesome. We're worried about this right now. Do you have anything else you want to say about Josh Maja? Because I want to, I want to move on and talk about Luke Gonayan, but I don't mm-hmm. want to, I don't want to uh, stop you talking about Maja if you got things to say. Um, oh, oh, just that, like you sometimes like do a bit of the background research on like what was actually happening, and the mm-hmm. the kind of the way they were structuring this is that he kind of kept saving them, right? It was like, oh, it's nil nil, and the eighty fourth minute he scores the winner, or he scores this goal, or he scores that, or he sets up this. I mean, do- I find the football stuff really hard to mm-hmm. follow in this. I think because I always want more. Information. You know the detail we go to in a game, right? Yeah. Um, I find it really frustrating to just see a quick shot of Josh Major scoring and um, I've forgotten his first name, but Barnes, the uh, the radio reporter. Yeah. yeah. Sunderland have won. And I'm like, what? How, how many games in are we? Where are they in the table? What was the score? What minute did he score yeah. in? Like, what, mm-hmm. what just happened? Yeah. That is my second favorite character, by the way. Uh, the BBC commentator. Yeah. Love He's him. a good pro. He's a good pro. Number one is the taxi driver. Far away. <laughs> love that man. Love him. Love him. Love him. Uh, no, I think that's it for Josh Maja. Uh, other than it was really interesting to sort of see the behind the scenes of a transfer saga. And you get like how awkward that must be. Because like we've, we've been in situations where we wanted like somebody who we're friends with who's very good to like play on our amateur team. And if mm-hmm. they don't want to or you don't want to like go over the top, you don't want to be overbearing. Like I can't imagine 
it really is. I, I, my last note on this is like it reminds me uh, for me uh, as like like an ex, like a girlfriend who you know is going to break up with you, or you're sort of realizing isn't that into you, but you're really into her, and so <sighs> you're just sort of like, well, maybe it will change, maybe it will change, and that's the other thing I felt really bad for is it's this like if you are the Sunderland owners and the coach and the fans and everything, it's this terrible cycle of you almost want him to be bad because if he has a downturn in form, maybe people won't want him anymore. Maybe he will be like, okay, never mind, the offers are kind of off the table. I will sign for you all and stay at Sunderland but the more he scores the like the better things are and the happier everybody is but simultaneously if you know he's probably gone you're sort of looking at that like oh no he keeps scoring everybody loves him he's so important to us and we're definitely gonna lose him this could be very bad for us here's my uh, my one final Josh Major thing yeah. it's a critique of the show um, they should have told us one how much money he was earning on this yes. contract um, two, how much the first offer was that came from Sunderland. Yes. And three, how much the next offer was that came from Sunderland. Considerably like it more, really, It was really, exactly right. It was really lacking those crucial mm-hmm. um, number details. And given how many times we see Stuart Donald like, going through the books and saying, okay, yeah. the, the figures are this, the figures are that, the fact that we never got the numbers in that Josh Madger thing. I mean, I don't know if, like, one, maybe the club didn't want those numbers released. Maybe Josh Madger didn't want those numbers um, released or aired or made public. Like, there could be a confidentiality thing. Or if it's just sort of... Um, bad faith on the part of the filmmakers because I definitely feel like they've they've made this thing um, to try and make the the whole show appeal to as many people as possible but mm-hmm. I feel like the majority of people watching it are hardcore football fans who who want to know they know part of part of football is we know how much most players are making right yeah, and, and, and so I, it did seem... We want the details, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and honestly, I kind of wanted the details throughout. I wish... I know you teased me a little bit uh, in our uh, English Game episode for, like, wanting a little bit more, like, on-the-nail, like, on-the-head dialogue. But here, like, I, I do I would wish... like get my drink at the pub, please, Fergie. <laughs> but I really wish they would give us some more numbers. I wish we could see, like... Oh, okay. Like at this point, they've moved like how far towards closing the gap and becoming like financially stable. And and I yeah. do wish they gave us some numbers about like okay, we, like they've made this introductory offer, which was even in this range or something. I just feel like some graphics that kind of explain things would be a little bit yeah. more useful to give us a clear footing uh, on where we are, uh, both with the club, with Josh Maja, uh, with just general finances, all that good stuff. Agreed. 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 Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk. Actually, I want to talk Lyndon Gooch for a second. Sure. Lyndon Gooch, the American, we know he has a great season for Sunderland this mm-hmm. season, right? Um, he pops up like with an assist, I think, for either Maja or Onion. Onion, I think, in this. You see him be quite influential throughout mm-hmm. these games, and still he is not a featured, um, a featured player. And I think it's because he wasn't interested in talking to the mm-hmm. cameras. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that you're, you do, you're not getting the full picture at all because you're only getting the, the players that have agreed to talk to camera. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's definitely the case. I mean, Lee Cattermall would be another very good example of yeah. this like very central figure who is playing in pretty much every single game, has Premier League experience, is one that people would know, I know, uh, and yet we don't really ever hear from him. And that feels like a player that we would have heard from if he hadn't like said, nope, not doing that, yeah. don't want any part of it. And John O'Shea last season, mm-hmm. the first season of Sunderland Until I Die, like 30-something-year-old, he would have been like 36-year-old captain who had like won the Premier League with Manchester United but getting relegated with Sunderland. That's definitely someone you would want on camera, right? But I think he, he just wasn't interested either. And I understand that like if they're not going to talk to camera, then um, they can't be a central, central part mm-hmm. of the story. But I, I feel like they've focused too narrowly on the players that have agreed to talk to camera and just pretended that no one else exists. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think like like we don't know what happened. We don't know if they just chose to like have these like five or six people that they were always going to go to, and that's it. Uh, I feel like there's also a chance though that like I, I went back uh, because we do have the scene in the second episode of Charlie kind of meeting with some fans and giving them the straight talk and and gets them all on board. And that contrasts with around this time in the first season, they try to do the same thing and it goes really really poorly. The fans are really really angry, and John O'Shea is sitting right there being silent, not saying a word as these fans get angrier and angrier and I wonder if some of these people like Lena Gooch like Lee Cattermole maybe saw the way it went last season and were like yeah I'm not inviting that into my life I don't need to be <laughs> like on display publicly saying like yeah things are great as they get relegated again <laughs> well let's talk Luke O'Neill so sure. This is a charming young man. Oh, yeah, yes. I, re- I really like his, uh, his attitude. My wife watched these episodes with me, and she said, why don't they just make him the owner of the club? <laughs> <laughs> I did feel so bad for him in that first game when it went very, very, very poorly. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, it, it seems like he turns it around a little bit. Um, here is the thing that I found mildly frustrating about this, though. And, again, it's another thing of, like, maybe where they could have helped explain some stuff. Uh, I didn't know this until I started playing a Sunderland in FIFA 20. I started a, a career campaign because I'm going to be the one to turn around, Daryl. What position does Luke O'Neill play? I only know because I looked this up. He plays yeah. right back or right mid. Right. But primarily a right back is what it turns out. That is not the way they, I feel like they set the stage. Like, well, I they don't they... tell you at all. This is part of the problem, right? There is no yeah. information for actual football fans. There's just, here's Luke O'Neill. Here but you in, go. He's charming. First game. He, and he, he does well or he doesn't do well. We don't yeah. know what position he plays. And I still think there's a fundamental mistake here in just not giving the little details that football fans like you and I and a lot of people watching this show, mm-hmm. uh, the details that they, that they want. Yeah. Uh, but, like, but instead they give us the details that, that seem to indicate, like, I 100% thought he was, like, a central midfielder slash an attacking midfielder. Because in that first game, we see him in and around the box and not looking very effective. And if you re- understand that it's because he is primarily a right-back slash wide midfielder, it makes sense why he wouldn't be doing very well in an attacking position in the middle of the field. So, like, it felt like that was one of those moments where I was like, ooh, I feel like you all kind of structured this to make it seem as though he was this misfiring central midfielder so that later on when he scores a goal, it seems like, oh, he's found his form as opposed to, hey, that defender slash occasional midfielder found a way to score. That's great. So maybe maybe the 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 big trick or the big thing that not tricks harsh but the uh, the technique let's say technique the filmmakers are using is to not give us hard details about mm-hmm. The players and hard details about numbers because then it makes it easier for them to sort of shape the narrative that yeah. the way they want to shape it. Yeah, I think that's you know what I'm saying. True. Like yeah. it's, maybe it's harder to shape the narrative um, if if you've already given firm details and then you can't get around those those details. Uh, yeah. So, so what did you find? Like, aside from him being very, very sweet, what did you find sort of compelling about Luke O'Neill? Um, I think he's very honest, right? Mm-hmm. You heard him talking honestly about how he struggled the first the first game, and then just him talking about like things like not bottling things up and mm-hmm. like expressing your emotions and things like that. These are things that it normally takes people maybe until their 30s to realize. Yeah. And I feel like there's this very sweet young man in his early 20s who is already realizing that stuff. And there's also just there's um. There's an excitement about him, right? I think he's come from the league below, I want to say. And he's just like all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and like yeah. excited to play, uh, excited to be a professional footballer. He's not jaded yet. He is not. I, I, he has I'm no assuming, jade. I'm assuming he's from Sunderland, though, or from the surrounding area. I couldn't pick his accent. Okay. But, yeah, but he, talked, he talks accent. a lot about like going home and talking to his parents. And that was the other thing I sort of enjoyed. They bring that up with Maja as well. Like, have you talked to his parents? Has he talked to his parents? And you forget that all these guys are very young and their family 
are the people that they go to to help them figure these situations out. And it is, it's not dissimilar for me graduating college and like talking to my parents about like what I should do next. It's just a very different scale because it's these guys talking about like, well, should I go play for this team or should I move here? And it's, it's the same idea just on a much different slash larger scale. Do you know what? Thinking about it, I think Luke O'Neill is from a sort of, uh, because his accent is so neutral, I mm-hmm. bet he's from down south, like near London, uh, and from a sort of middle classish background. Okay, all right. That's my that's my guess at Luke O'Neill. Well, there we are. So w- yeah. we have a guess there. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about him? Even though he's, I'm going to guess middle class. He didn't go to Eton. <laughs> he did not. Charlie did, and uh, I did not know that until you told me that. I think in the last episode. Yeah. And and the moment where I realized it, like like. Obviously, I realized it when you told me, but the moment when I was like, oh, I can hear it, because I hadn't really yep. paid attention to the accents. To be honest, a lot of the accents, unless it's like, oh, that's Irish. Oh, that's Scottish. It's it's kind of a vaguely English accent. Some of them I can figure out. The people from Sunderland, I can tell, is a Sunderland accent. Um, but when Charlie is talking, and it, this is the English game rubbing off, uh, because a lot of the characters in there went to Eton, uh, at one point he says, like, if the staff, and the way he says staff yeah. is the exact way that they say it in that show. And I was like, ooh, there it is. Yeah. There's the poshness coming through. He takes a bath, definitely. But not even the long A. It was just hilarious to me that the word, like, that, like the idea that like, him saying staff, which is 100% like what I heard in the English game of like, tell the staff to serve dinner at six. And it's like, and now he's saying the same thing about the people who work for him. It just felt definitely. like that word was beautifully uh, perfect as being the one that kind of united those two worlds for me. I mean, to put it in context for people who've seen the English game, mm-hmm. Charlie could play for Old Etonians. He could. If, if he actually knew anything about football or was also any that. good at football, yeah. he could play for Old Etonians having like, gone to Eton College for his, for his high school. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, so that is his background. Uh, Let's talk Charlie. Let's talk Charlie. pretty clear that uh, a lot of the people at that club do not like him. Here yeah. is my favorite way of understanding that. Uh, I don't listen to Adam Carolla anymore. I used to. Uh, and he always had a joke about like uh, you can tell somebody doesn't like somebody if they're doing an interview and it's an actor and they're like the question is about Martin Scorsese and they say like oh you know Marty's the best I love working with him he's so creative what about Robert De Niro oh Bob Bob's the best you know he's such a motivator he's such a great person to act with what about Al Pacino well you know Al's Al and it's like oh okay you didn't like him got it and the number of people in this episode that said like well you know Charlie's Charlie and Charlie's gonna do what Charlie does it's like okay you all do not enjoy Charlie that much is clear they just couldn't find the words to say it without saying it right (laughs) so instead they rolled their eyes 17,000 times on camera that's that's what it seemed like to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we do get a lot of Charlie uh, running the business side, quote unquote, doing PR, selling tickets, all that good yeah, stuff. Yeah. So um, if you haven't seen this episode, or, uh, I guess if you have, the, the big thing that is going on with Charlie is he's trying to sell, he's trying to have a record crowd for the big Boxing Day game. And for those who don't know, Boxing Day and New Year's Day are sort of big games in England because everybody's off work for the holidays. Um, everybody's looking for something to do. Uh, you know, a lot of businesses are closed because it's, you know, around Christmas. Um, and so it is a traditional thing for everyone to to go to a football game. Here's my one big problem. Again, this is about like numbers and data. Um, and it's also about, I think, the show filming things that are staged. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. That scene when they are looking at ticket sales Mm-hmm. And there's a graph and ticket sales go up just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. They're looking at that and their reactions as if they are 
absolutely shocked to discover that ticket sales around Christmas just before that Boxing Day game went up dramatically last year just before Boxing Day. That happens every year for every single football team. That wasn't some incredible business discovery they just Mm -hmm. made. I'm pretty sure that was staged for the cameras to set up this whole um, race to try and sell out the stadium. So do you think, like, why would they need to do that, though? Why would they need to do that? To communicate to non-soccer fan audience members who don't realize that that's the case. So do you think that was then, like, specifically for an American audience? Because there are times when I feel like they're not necessarily going over their heads to explain stuff. But then again, they wouldn't need to explain, like, relegation to an English audience, and they do that sometimes. So, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And, in and the, it, Taylor, at the end of the first season, they explain relegation to the audience. At yeah, the start of this season, they ex- yeah. ex- explained promotion and didn't even really explain the playoff system. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They give you the absolute bare basics. And I really think they're spoon-feeding the way things work to people in this documentary and again my contention is i don't think they need to do it because the people watching this are already football fans so here's the thing though that actually makes me feel slightly better about charlie i have to be honest because it's always my favorite part of those like bad reality shows when like it's clear that the best friend is there in the scene for the main character to say like this person did this and it made me really mad to go with the hills analogy like they do that all the time they go have coffee and then one of them very bluntly says like so what's up with you and blah 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 and then they go off about it and oh, Charlie couple- Charlie's the blonde guy from the hills right yes what's his uh, name Spencer oh Spencer yes yeah. he is very Spencerish uh, I like that we're both <laughs> referencing the hills as though that's a wildly current show uh, but it, but like there are moments like he has the one where it's like let, let's have a catch up before you slink off home and i found that such a strange way I to put that i wanted to punch him in his eating going face that is such a um to, to say that people slink off home is to say that they sneak out of the office exactly which yeah. which it's is an insult i would be that is not good management at all no it's not and that is what he feels we learn that later on that they're all kind of leaving and leaving prematurely but it also is the type of thing you would say if you're a rich posh person and that's how you say like the equivalent of like, oh, so your boyfriend made you angry? That's what that sounded like to me is how like tone deaf he delivered it. But now if you're saying it's like maybe a scripted thing where they said like, hey, tell her you need to have a talk about ticket sales so we can put that into the show, then that's him sort of doing that mechanically. Uh, being his natural self, don't get me wrong, but it makes yeah, a I, little bit more sense why that would need to be in there. I think that, so I'm not saying the whole thing is staged, yeah, right? Just, so. I want to be really clear about that. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that before you slink off home line, I think that's accurate. That just is how he would have spoken to people. Mm-hmm. I think that was accurately captured. Yeah. But I definitely think this thing where they show the the bar chart with sales going up just before Christmas and they're all like, whoa, look at this. Um, I think is that is staged for the narrative. Yeah. Um, and to, to double down on this, I, I also think the, um, the, the opening of episode three... Um, oh, I've forgotten his name, but he's the the veteran, the guy who served in Kosovo and Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's, oh, uh, yeah. it's, um, it's he's a the Sunderland fan, right? Uh, and it's, Andrew. Andrew. And it's Remembrance Sunday, which is mm-hmm. kind of like British Memorial Day, right? We do it the 11th of November every year to sort of recognize uh, people who lost their lives in, in wars. Um, and he's he's having this whole big speech about, you know, the, the sense of community and passion uh, and everything that he felt in the army. And then there's the thing where it cuts to the Sunderland crowd and you hear um, you hear him say something like, um, and I get the same thing at Sunderland Football Club. And that's it's definitely recorded at a different time. 
Oh, right? yeah. Oh, the you ADR and, style? I love that You one. and I work in audio, right? We can yes. recognize when mm-hmm. something has been recorded in one room and what the, what the body of the voice feels like. And I don't know. We can just recognize different audio. That's definitely different audio. I would encourage people to go back and listen to that again. Hmm. That is absolutely, they've asked him to come in and say that um, later on. Uh, you can just tell because the quality of his voice is very, very different. That's interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't put that one together, but it does make sense. Uh, it was. I felt like you I, won't, I, you won't be able to not hear it when you, if you go back and listen. I guarantee right. it. Maybe I have to do it for a third time. Uh, I did think that was kind of a strange way to begin that episode, but I guess it makes sense because it simultaneously shows like the tradition and what people go through away from the club, but then also kind of sets the scene for where we are in the season. Because like Remembrance Day, I think of as being in the late fall. Like everybody's wearing the poppies, and yeah, yeah. that tends to be a signifier of where we are. And then we get like early November. I forget how they do that one, but it's it's it, that helps us kind of understand the passage of time a little bit. I think absolutely. Sorry, that was a bit of a diversion mm. that uh, I went on. Just uh, yeah, let's to, get back to, to complaining about Charlie. To make my case about the sort of the style of filmmaking mm-hmm. I think we're we're looking at. Um, all right, yeah, let's get back to the uh, the race to sell the tickets. Right, this is what the whole of episode three is mm-hmm. essentially um, about. I would argue they were always going to do it anyway because clubs the size of Sunderland are not often in League One. Yeah, I mean, so they're always going to like sell a lot. I I, I do yeah. think that they probably did a sustained campaign and it probably brought about awareness in any number of ways they did it. So they probably got a bigger number than they would have otherwise. But yes, I agree that they were going to get a big uh, like attendance either way. And I would love to have known what the sales techniques were. Was it just right. phoning people up and saying, mm-hmm. hey, buy a ticket? Or well, we did saw they... Jack Ross go uh, see two old ladies, and that was nice. Yeah, so did they go? I don't know. There's two extra tickets or not. We don't We don't know, right? Like, yeah. Was that going to happen anyway? Um, I would love to know sort of what sort of – I'm really interested in this, actually. A cash-strapped club like Sunderland um, – there's definitely a thing if you've got to spend money to make money, right? Like mm-hmm. you've got to put money into marketing to get that does persuade people to come and attend the game. But then also you've got to put that money out at front and you don't want to add, um, you don't want to increase the marketing budget necessarily, right? So I would have been interested in that conversation or uh, that sort of, that, that decision-making process when you don't have much money, but you've got to market the team instead of just seeing Charlie yell at staff, like do better marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're having some frank discussions. And again, this is where I feel like numbers would have been useful because yeah. we keep getting this, these these conversations about how like people some, – some people aren't on board. Some people don't want to come with us, and then we get the Katamaja. But like I don't know what they're talking about. Like I, it, it seems to me – and I think we're supposed to understand that like some of the women in the ticket office are sort of rolling their eyes and they're not being as motivated as Charlie would like. But like, because I, he's I don't a bad understand. leader, that's why. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. But like, it, it doesn't tell me sort of like I'm not seeing people be at odds with their philosophy, or I'm not seeing people sort of go behind his back or refuse to carry out what he's asking, except for when he demands that they count the tickets faster. Like, like I don't understand what the conflict is, and that's where I wish that we had seen sort of like this is the number of people they've had to fire. They're at this point financially, they need to have this much money for marketing. Like, it doesn't need to be that detailed, I guess. But it would have been good to get some idea idea of what they're up against as opposed yeah. to will they sell some tickets i don't know we'll find out oh they did it's great <laughs> well i bet if you were to ask the filmmakers mm-hmm. or maybe if, if you even to ask charlie and Stuart about what was going on in that episode they sort of make the argument that under the old regime of ellis short um 
it didn't matter because at the end of the day, you just got Ellis Short to sign the check, right? Yeah. So it sort of didn't matter if you uh, made certain sales targets or whatever because the money was always covered. And I think that what they're trying to say is they're trying to turn around the culture to make people understand that for the club to survive, like you have to make the sales target. Like Ellis yeah. Short isn't going to bail you out. And, and I, kind of, I kind of understand that as a concept, but I didn't see them then saying, and here's what that means and here's how we do this, except for just yelling at people to, to be better. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and so actually, maybe you can help me make sense of this because uh, there's the that kind of like three way meeting where uh, Stewart is annoyed and saying basically like in my business, if we hadn't like reached a solution at this point, like heads would roll. Uh, Charlie's in there, and then there's I think it's Tony Davidson who's the managing director. Charlie is complaining about people leaving early and people don't care. Tony says like basically that's not fair, but you have given them like sort of more power, and you're asking them to kind of be self actualized, and they've never had that, so they don't know how to do it. So they're sort of learning how to do it, and you've got to be patient with them, which is interesting to me given that Charlie had earlier said to the fans, like, this is your club, we want to make it your club, and we're going to manage it, but we want to, like, have you guys learn how to take it over, basically. So it seems like maybe that wasn't entirely truthful. But the point here with Tony, I don't quite get what he's saying. Is he saying that basically, like, and this sounds harsh, but it's the best way I can understand it, is he saying essentially that they're, like, sort of entrenched bureaucrats, and now you're asking those bureaucrats to actually do the job, or else they'll be fired, and they kind of don't know how to respond to that fast enough for Charlie's liking? I I mean... Kind of, yeah. The, okay. Yeah, the, I think the, the subtext of what the... Sorry, I've forgotten his name. What's the managing director's name? Uh, Tony. Tony, the subtext, of, Tony, the subtext of what he's saying, I think, is that you're not giving them any direction. Okay. Yeah, which, which does make sense uh, because it feels a little bit like uh, part of what the philosophy is, especially with Charlie, is sort of throwing people under the bus. Uh, yeah. he, he publicly criticizes Tony in front of the staff with Tony not there, and he does that a couple different times. There's that one staff meeting where he basically says, like, the staff didn't know how to do this, and now we're learning. And then it took me a while to realize, like, oh, he's talking to the people he's talking about. That is a weird, weird thing, and that's the one where nobody asks questions at the end, and he's pretty uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's basically because he said, like, you all don't know how to do your job, but he does it uh, like by talking about them as though it's a different person he's talking about. Yeah, his management style, and I think we should maybe move on from Charlie in a second. Sure. I can feel myself just getting mad at him, but mm-hmm. his management style is to walk around and just tell people they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the, I think he thinks that that is motivation. I think he's yeah. the type of person that in sort of medieval times would have executed people in a public square to like make mm-hmm. an example of them, and that would motivate people. You know, I, I think, think that's his style. Yeah, but I think it's also with that in mind, uh, not the public execution, but his style, like it's it's an important reminder of first impressions because when he first comes in, and I think that's why they kind of go heavy on the, the club music thing is because when you first meet Charlie, he, despite the accent, despite the club music, you get this idea that like he is very like direct and straightforward and he's dealing with stuff and you know we've been like uh, there's been too much fluff for too long we're cutting it away we're gonna deal with it and he's very blunt with the supporters groups about like look there was this much loss this isn't okay it's not like this and the more you get to know him the more you realize no he just talks to people like that he just tells people go get me a beer and then when they bring him the beer he there's no thanks there's no anything it's just no you're supposed to do what i say that's how this works you also have been put in a position where like and i do think that part of that is like he's just sort of because of the eaten background he has sort of been in this position maybe his whole life and he just assumes that everybody else has as well and so there's just these moments with the way he talks to people where it goes from like oh he's cutting through the fluff to get at the heart of the matter to just like oh no he just constantly is rude to people and that's sort of his style Absolutely. Yeah. Like, for example, I think he thinks the way to get uh, people who are like, you know, like 
3,000 feet away from him to count mm-hmm. tickets faster is to yell at the lady that's in front of you. Like, yeah, I think th- he thinks that that's how ticket counting works. Yes. And, and so my final thing with Charlie, if you don't mind, uh, which also maybe extend, extends to owner Stewart a little bit. Uh, it's another deep cut movie reference. Do you remember Traffic? That yeah, movie? of course. Yeah, Steven Soderbergh. Soderbergh. Do you remember? The, I think it's uh, Michael Douglas when he takes over as like the drug czar. Uh, not like an actual czar of drugs, but like, you know, like the person who's regulating drugs. And yeah. the person who he's taking over for tells him like the two letters story. Do you remember that? Uh, the thing you leave for your predecessor. Yeah, one of them is like, when something goes wrong, you open the first letter, and the first letter says, blame blame me, basically. Blame the person who was here before. And then when the second thing goes wrong, open the second letter, and the second letter says, write two letters. Yep. Uh, That's (laughs) sort of how I feel with this one, that it keeps being the old ownership group, the old ownership group. And I know that they left them in a bad situation, but you can only do that for so long before people are going to look at you and think like, yeah, that was six months ago. It's been yep. however many much time period. And it does feel like we're moving towards that point. Yep. All right. One final thing I just want to put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, this is both um, my slight irritation with this documentary and mm-hmm. a large irritation with Charlie. Um, I did a bit of reading and found that there was a big controversy in September 2018 where Charlie referred to Sunderland fans who watched the game in the pub and um, the pubs would have sometimes illegal streams I and mean, didn't go to the stadium. He called those people parasites. And it was this massive, massive sort of local oh local scandal. And he later had to apologize um, and take it all back. And I think it's really, I say that not just to bash Charlie, because I think there's enough of that, right? There's enough of bashing Charlie Metherin. Um, But I think it's worth remembering that when you're watching uh, Sunderland Till I Die, just because it says it's a documentary, you're absolutely not getting the full story. There are major events like him calling the fans parasites and then having mm-hmm. to backtrack that are absolutely not included. So you're not getting the full picture. I think if we've learned one thing in recent memory, it's maybe don't refer to an entire group of people with a negative term because that might come back to bite you. Yes. Yes. And Charlie yes. Methven, no longer managing director, by the way, in the future. Yeah, that, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> that, that makes some sense to me. Uh, uh, any other things uh, we wanted to talk about? No, I think we've said enough about Sunderland till I die, right? Um, uh, except yeah, I think so. We'll be back to talk episodes, what, four, five, and maybe six um, in, the next, in the next week or so. We have listener questions to answer, which I'm very excited about. But first, today's show is sponsored by Roman. Mm-hmm. Um, Taylor, I'm not going to ask you to guess on average how many days people in the US have to wait to see a doctor. Um, you know that 58 it, days. It was 29 days. It may be even more right now. Yeah, right. Um, I would so, say so. Telemedicine especially important right mm-hmm. now. Um, luckily, our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state or from the comfort of home. Yeah, which, which is, uh, like as you said, more important now than ever. Uh, all you need to do is grab your phone, your computer, you complete a free online visit, online being the key word there, uh, free also fairly important, uh, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you. Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping, so you basically never have to leave your living room, which is ideal. I've just realized we haven't said what Roman does. Um, Mm -hmm. It's basically, if you are dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, uh, Roman is the solution. It is indeed. Uh, And so you can deal with it discreetly and quickly and get it dealt with. There are no commitments. You can cancel any time, which is also very nice and allows you to be flexible. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash TSS uh, for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Thank you to Roman for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. 
Indeed, uh, indeed. All right, Taylor, we've got four questions. Uh, and the last question is three questions, but I think, mm-hmm. I think we can do this. Okay. <laughs> all right. So first listener question comes from Josh Nagy. Um, Josh Nagy says, I've been watching the English game along with you guys. Do many of the clubs mentioned in the show still exist? Did they change their names? Specifically, I'm wondering about Darwin FC and the Old Etonians. I was also curious about Partick. Is the Partick that Jimmy and Fergus played for now Partick Thistle? So I've, right. I've done all the research on this, Taylor. I've got all the answers, including what happened to uh, the Blackburn teams. All right. Do you just want to give those answers or should I uh, take I'd my like, shots? I'd like you to take a guess. Like, for example, Darwin FC. We mm-hmm. don't talk about them ever. Um, how long do you think Darwin FC stuck around? Um. Now, I would say they, they stuck around for a while, but I also don't know if they stuck around in like that incarnation iteration or if it was like Darwin FC and then Darwin AFC and then Darwin SC or like, like I feel like sometimes smaller clubs would rebrand and change. So my assumption is that they were around for a while, but maybe like merged with other ones and became another club. And, and now I did have a momentary panic that like, are they Manchester United? I know it was like, <laughs> they're like, uh, uh, Newton, Newton Heath rail lines yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I wondered for a moment, but I, I'm assuming it was something like that. So Darwin FC has mm-hmm. a continuous history from when they were founded all the way up until 2009. They have wow. one they had 134 years of existence. How about that? That's not bad. But I'm assuming in lower lower leagues. For 110 of those 134 years they played lower league football. Yeah. So here's what happened basically after the events of the English game. The football league started, right? In what like 1889, I believe. Um so they joined the football league and finished bottom in the first season. Absolute bottom. Uh, they were the first team ever relegated because of league results. <laughs> they were relegated hey, to there the second go. division um, of the Football League. They were promoted again. They dropped back down again. They hung around and the in the first yo yo club. The wow. first yo yo club in history. They hung around in the second division until the 1898 99 season, where they lost 18 games in a row and conceded 141 goals. That was the, that, that was the, we're going to get the, uh, uh, the what's it called? Uh, the prequel uh, documentary about that one, yeah. Until I Die, uh, <laughs> Darwin edition. What happens to <laughs> Darwin till I die? What happens then is they essentially decide we we don't have the resources, we can't hack it in the new you know uh, professional football league. So they drop down to play in the Lancashire League, which is basically non-league regional football, and that's where they played up until 2008 when Darwin FC was folded with unpaid debts. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that's not All the right, end. So- you said AFC Darwin, right? I don't know if you've seen that name around, but AFC no. Darwin was Is formed. AFC Darwin was formed mm-hmm. in 2009 as a sort of Phoenix club to because Darwin FC was had to be like wound up is what they say in England with unpaid debts like going into bankruptcy essentially um, being liquidated and destroyed uh, but AFC Darwin like plays in the same stadium and has sort of continued the Darwin name from 2009 onwards still playing non-league football. The AFC uh, it's AFC Wimbledon now, right? Yes. Yeah, that's where that came from. Yes. When they rebranded, they became AFC instead of Wimbledon FC or yeah, FC Wimbledon. And, and they kind of started a tradition of always doing that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so that's Darwin. Old Etonians, it took me a minute. Uh, I have This is the one like I, I looked up very briefly, and, and I saw that there was an is instead of a was. So I'm assuming they're still around because it's a present, uh, yes. present tense verb. Old Etonians are still around, yeah. And with that in mind, it occurred to me afterwards that, like, if they were the amateur team of gentlemen from university, I'm going to guess they stuck that way. Of course, yeah. Old Etonians. Okay, so the Old Etonians now play in what's called the Arthurian League. How about okay. that? So the Arthurian League, it's a competition. They, did not, they didn't move away from the poshness, huh? 
They did not because the Arthurian League is specifically it's seven divisions and it's for teams from posh schools, right? So the teams in the Arthurian League are the old Etonians, the old Carthusians, the old Horovians, all those guys who are essentially uh, posh schools in England. Uh, the players who used to go to those schools um, play in this league. So th- this is the really interesting part. Um, the old Etonians stopped competing in the FA Cup after 1888. So that's just three years after um, teams were allowed to be professional. Right. And Mm -hmm. just before the Football League, the official Football League was formed in 1889. They obviously didn't enter the Football League because that was going to be all professionals and mostly northern teams, not a bunch of uh, uh, like gentlemen amateurs. Instead, the AFA, the Amateur Football Alliance, was formed in 1907 as a place for high level amateur teams to compete against each other. So the Arthurian League is uh, one of the sanctioned leagues of the Amateur Football Alliance. So, so yes, yeah, they all continued they, amateur soccer. They somewhat did take their ball and go home. They just went to a different home uh, away yeah. from the professionalism. Okay. It's really interesting, right? Because there was the threat of the breakaway league that made the FA relent and allow professionalism. But in the end, they had to form their own amateur breakaway league so that they could still play in their sort of college and high school old boy network. I have to say, since you brought up old Etonians and uh, old Carthusians, I didn't say this on the show yesterday, but uh, every time I hear those names, because... Old would imply that there was like another breakaway team, like maybe like a bunch of youngsters started another Etonian team, and so they had to differentiate. And it always reminds me of the Spinal Tap joke of they started off as the Originals, then they found out there was already a band called the Originals, so they became the New Originals until that band folded, and then they went back to the Originals. That's what these <laughs> names feel like to me. But well, so it, it just means used to go to, right? Okay, right. Okay. So, like All I right. said, you'd be you'd play for the old Governor School Leans. That name is, I think, equally as uh, flexible and good as Old Etonians and Old Carthusians. I still don't quite understand how they got to be Carthusians. Uh, I also didn't even think about Partick, which was the uh, third part of the question, right, from Josh? Uh, Is the Partick that Jimmy and Fergus played for now Partick Thistle? Uh, I 100% assumed they were when they first mentioned it. I thought it was just sort of them being, like, insidery. Like, we all know it's Partick Thistle. Uh, Looking it up, it is not. It is an entirely different club. It was Partick FC, uh, who, uh, if you're wondering what happened to them, were overtaken by Partick Thistle. Thistle, essentially. Uh, Thistle uh, basically started beating them in the Scottish Cup. They got more fans. They got a bigger attendance. They both joined the Glasgow Football Association at the same time, uh, but Partick Thistle became the more popular one, and when Partick FC went like went bankrupt, were defunct, uh, Partick Thistle took over their home ground, uh, and eventually, I believe, took their colors as well and Oof. sort of blended it all together, and so they essentially just kind of took their history and made it theirs. They're the so Borg. is that a merger or a hostile takeover? Yes. <laughs> I think it's I think it's sort of as both, but I would go with hostile takeover after like the CEO uh, has like left for vacation or something. I don't really I don't really know. It seems like maybe they weren't sounds like, necessarily working. It sounds like a Christian Bale American Psycho murders and acquisitions <laughs> situation, right? Yeah. Uh, hopefully, it didn't get to that level. I don't think chainsaws were involved. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, the. Here is me reading directly from Wikipedia. Uh, the Partick FC colors of red, yellow, and black uh, were eventually adopted by Thistle around 1930 via the acquisition of a set of kits. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. It's kind of like, you guys have got nothing left. We'll give you yeah. four, four pounds for your leftover kits and then go home. I hope it wasn't and that mean. Like, and we're moving into your house. And we'll buy your boots too. We're leaving you with nothing. Um, so Josh actually didn't ask about Blackburn, mm-hmm. um, but weirdly Blackburn is maybe the most interesting story. So as I think I've mentioned a million times in our English game reviews, there wasn't just one Blackburn team, right? For the English game, they merged the histories and for- forged together Blackburn Rovers 
and Blackburn Olympic, who are actually two teams who were getting to FA Cup finals um, around the same time in the late 1800s in England. Here's what happened to those two different teams. Are you ready, Taylor? I am. Blackburn Rovers are obviously the current Blackburn Rovers, right? That team just stayed, like joined the Football League, hung around, won the Premier League in 90, as recently as 1995, right? With Alan Shearer, Chris Sutton, all that. They are currently in the English Championship. So Blackburn Rovers really hung around, even though the current ownership group is doing its best to destroy them. <laughs> um, but, they're, but they're still with us. Blackburn Olympic, the first working class team to lift the FA Cup were denied entry into the Football League when it was founded. Marindin. Not Marindin. It was, I can't remember his name, the Football League founder. He was the, also the Villa chairman. Um, they had a rule at the time when they formed the Football League. Um, you know, and they were quite selective. It was almost like expansion in Major League Soccer, right? There were only certain teams were allowed to be in it. One of the rules was that you could only have one club from each city. And the Football League had to choose between Rovers and Olympic and they chose Blackburn Rovers. Ouch. That would Ouch. Be, that'd be tough, but it was the case that Blackburn had won more and more recently, right? Yes, because uh, Fergus Suter had played for them, and in like later years, uh, he, he won a couple, at least, FA Cups with Blackburn Rovers. Yeah, so they were the more successful team at this time. But Blackburn Olympic have this massive history, right, of being the first working-class team to lift the FA Cup, and the Football League just said no to them. Um, they folded in 1889 because... The leagues they were playing in were like uh, regional or different leagues to the official football league. They couldn't get crowds. No one would go to watch them. No one wanted to play for them. But all the best players and all the crowds were going to Blackburn, right, to see the high-level football. So Blackburn Olympic just had to fold. 1889, they're done. Wow. It's harsh, wow. right? It's extremely yeah. harsh. Yeah, you get, you get a better understanding of why... Uh, they chose to merge those two for the purposes of the show because that would have been a sad footnote to have to add. Uh, it sure at the end would, of that right? show. And also slightly confusing, probably, too. Yes. I, yeah, I think so, too. Oh, speaking of the English game, Taylor, mm-hmm. um, I've got two apologies for you. Okay. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Um, so we learned in, the, I think, the either the final episode or the, at least the episode where Suter goes and makes his plea to the FA. We didn't talk about this on our review, um, that most working men work six days a week. Mm-hmm. So do you remember early on when they oh, yeah. negotiated yeah, yeah. the wage reduction, you and I were couldn't quite figure out, and I think I was disagreeing with you, that um, um, Shaw, is that the mill owner, the Darwin yeah. mill owner, mm-hmm. um, had given them a 5% wage cut, but cut their, only making them work five days a week instead of six. You were 100% right. Okay. Oh, so that's right. my first apology and concession. <laughs> um, second one, I went back and for the, for the game against Preston, uh-huh. they did leave to get the train from Blackburn to Preston. Okay. Not from London, as I was claiming. Listeners to this show, if they've already listened to our English game review, they will have heard my little insert that I dropped in to say, turns out Taylor was right. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's good, but I also, uh, that, that took some effort, man. Well, I like to know, I like to know, um, I like to settle our accounts. Let's put it that I way. Gotcha. I like to settle our accounts. <laughs> so if you had been right, would I be hearing about it right now? Yeah, but I think that's fair, right? <laughs> I suppose, I yeah. suppose. All right, well, good to know. Truth, so, but it still is. But it still is not that far away. So they didn't, they could have just said, let's take the carriage to Preston then, right? You said it was eight miles? Yeah, I mean, in a carriage, 10 miles is quite far, right? So yeah, it's 10, 10 miles on the train. So it's just probably like a couple of stops, you know what I mean? Right. A couple of stops okay. on the train. But I would argue that also makes it realistic that Kinnaird could have just walked back up the hill, gone to the train station and gone back to Blackburn on the train. All right. Are we assuming that trains ran that regularly then? 
Yes, we're assuming that the Blackburns of Preston line was very busy okay. in the late I mean, 1800s. I, I guess literally what I'm asking is like, because trains are so much more prevalent in England and in elsewhere than they are in, say, Richmond, Virginia, that I'm like, yeah. I am less familiar with them than probably a lot of people are. So I guess what I'm saying is like, do we, was it like sort of the approximation of the subway where it was like, yeah, there's like 10 different trains running from this place I mean, to this place every single day? Not that many. There's probably a scene, if we, if we were to be super realistic, there's probably a scene where Canard walks back up the hill and has to wait like an hour and a half for the next train (laughs) back to Blackburn, which in a way makes it even more romantic. And now we've started talking about the English game again. So (laughs) instead of doing that, anything else you wanted to point out about that one before we move on to the next question? I want to move on to the next question. All right. This one comes from Matt Koss. Uh, What are some of the most embarrassing on-field professional soccer moments? Ooh, so I've got, um, I just made a, a list of as many as I could think of in, in shorter, in short order. Yep. Um, I, I wrote one down. <laughs> what, what have you got? Let's, let's go with your one then first. I mean, it's Gary Lineker. It's a hundred percent Gary Lineker. I've, so I wrote it down and said, but it's not embarrassing because it was actually the right thing to do. What, to, to poop himself in the middle of a game? Yep. So this is the 1990 World Cup for England. It's a group uh-huh. stage game against Ireland. Lineker feels the need to go. So mm-hmm. he just does it sitting down on the field. Shakes it out of his shorts, wipes yep. his butt around a little bit like a dog on the like grass. Like a dog. And then uh-huh. he's up and he's back in the game. I mean, it would have been more embarrassing to leave the middle of a World Cup game to go and take a poop. Uh, I mean, or, you know, just do it before. That would have been fine. Uh, I, 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 I take your point, I but I still he, think that I that's... I think if he'd known he had to go, he would have done it before. You never know, man. You never know. That is a thing <laughs> that, like, I, I didn't really think about is, like, the adrenaline and everything else. Because usually when I've seen adrenaline manifest, it's people vomiting because they're yeah. so amped up. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe it was just that, like, yeah, he couldn't really be aware of that situation. Still, I, I understand what you're saying. Very, very embarrassing to poo yourself uh, <laughs> on global television. Well, he also, I don't think anyone knew. Right, this is a thing that Lineker admitted afterwards. You can so, pretty clearly see it. But he got away with it in the moment, right? I mean, yeah. I remember watching that game. I was I was young, but I would have if the commentator had said, "Oh, and Gary Lineker just took a poo in the middle of the World yeah. Cup game." Um, I think ten year old me would have remembered that. Yeah, and I should clarify. If <laughs> I would have thought it was the this. I would have thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen for one thing. Uh, Daryl, go ahead and write down this timestamp so you've got the bleep button ready. Yeah. Uh, for people who haven't seen it, I'm not saying that you can like literally see uh, poop coming out. I'm saying that if you see the replay, you'll see him say to a teammate, I <laughs> myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I really do think it was a thing that was caught afterwards, so yeah. I'm not putting it in the embarrassing category. Mm-hmm. All right, that's fair. There's other ones, though, that like I considered, and I think maybe similar to you, ruled out for different reasons. Like, There's the famous moment when uh, Brazil get a, a free kick against Zaire in the World Cup, and the Zaire player like runs up and boots the ball away. Yeah. And it was this whole, like, oh, they don't even know like how to defend a free kick. Like, oh, they don't know how this works. And in reality, it's like because they were terrified of what would happen yeah. if they lost by too many goals, and he was just trying to like kill time. It was so it takes on like, a sinister right? moment, whereas I see that listed a lot as like, most ridiculous moments from the World Cup. And it's yeah. like, not ridiculous in a very different way way than you mean it sir yeah absolutely it's like under pressure actually doing quite a smart thing because it mm-hmm. might it might work they didn't score that yep. free kick i don't think nope not so much <laughs> and it did kill a couple of minutes so yeah well done that guy. Um, <laughs> um i've got i actually think a big embarrassing moment is steven gerrard's slip against chelsea yeah. mm-hmm. in 2014 so if you haven't seen this it's uh liverpool are i think top of the league at this point it's april so we're getting towards the end of the season um, and it's Steven Gerrard, who two weeks previously, after Liverpool had beaten Manchester City 3-2 at Anfield to like, you know, really take the lead in the title race, he'd famously gathered all the Liverpool players together and said, like a big motivational speech, we don't let this slip, right? We don't uh. let this slip. Two weeks later, it's Liverpool versus Chelsea 
Um, and Gerard sort of comes, you know how Gerard would often like come deep and receive the ball in that number six type spot? Mm-hmm. Um, let the ball run across him. I think he has a loose touch. The ball gets away from him. Then as he goes to recover it, he loses his footing and slips. Demba Bar for Chelsea just takes the ball, through on goal, scores. Liverpool lose that game 2-0. Manchester yeah. City win the league, right? So that moment, I think especially because of the we don't let this slip thing two weeks earlier, um, I think is a genuinely... Um, it's embarrassing, but it's veering into tragic, right? It's it's a, mm-hmm. especially because Liverpool haven't won the league in so long. Yeah, hopefully that gets uh, changed. We'll see. We'll see what happens with we'll the, the remainder of the season. But uh, yeah, I, I I think that's a a solid one. I kind of didn't want to pick that one because it might have felt like I was uh, pouring salt into that one a bit. If people are um, Liverpool fans are listening and they're upset at that memory, then um, for happier memories, uh, mm-hmm. listen to Soccer One Hundred and One, our other podcast. We just did a big, really deep dive, hour long breakdown of the two thousand and five Champions League final so mm-hmm. please accept that as our apology to you for bringing up the Stephen Gerrard slip <laughs> um the, I have I have two more for you though Gary Lineker was like the number one that came uh yeah. to me off the top of my head Gerrard uh came in as well I did do some reading uh and I will uh lift from some different places because I didn't really think about Diana Ross missing the penalty <laughs> uh to begin the 94 World Cup that comes from a Bleacher Report article but that is really representative of like in the moment it's just like oh yeah some pop star who doesn't know anything about soccer who's like singing a song was supposed to kick the ball into the goal and then the goal breaks in half she misses but the goal still breaks in half but then you see it from the broader perspective of like the criticism of the united states heading into that tournament is there's no soccer history they don't have a league they don't know what they're doing why are you putting it here and then the first thing that happens is this sort of calamitous thing so i think for things off the field and the sort of reputation of that tournament going yeah. in, maybe that's why that one's embarrassing <laughs> it's weird that diana ross made this list Yes, <laughs> but but I do agree with that moment because it was famously mm-hmm. it was sort of famously bad for it was it, it looked auspiciously bad for the U.S. hosting the tournament. Turned yeah. out things went fine for uh, the U.S. national team and the tournament as a whole was mostly uh, was mostly on point, right? Yeah. Um, there was an English comedian Frank Skinner who at the time this really stuck with me. Um, he said, "I don't see what the big deal is. She was just doing what they asked her to do. They introduced her as, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Diana Ross, <laughs> and then she did." Oh, <laughs> your people are wonderful. Uh, your, sure your, are. your people also include Kevin Keegan. And this is the other one that uh, oh, what's like, he done? was lifted. I mean, it's the Kevin Keegan rant oh. uh, when he's manager of Newcastle. But this is one for me, like, I'll be honest, it never seemed that ridiculous to me because we, we hear managers rant all the time. And, and, and sometimes it blows up in their faces and sometimes it doesn't. But this is the famous one of like, I would love it. I, I don't know why I made him Scottish. I would love it if we beat him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Why is that considered to be such an embarrassing thing aside from like, and then they don't and they end up slipping and Man United win? Because you're supposed to keep your cool, right? In okay. the middle of a title race, you're supposed to keep your cool and just head down, stay focused, um, get on with it and don't don't let your emotions get to you. And it's it's because Ferguson had, I think, said something about... And I think Ferguson had deliberately like needled him, right? Mm, Ferguson yeah. had said that he thinks that maybe other teams play really hard against Manchester United, but maybe they take it easy on Newcastle. Oh, and that, and it was Keegan responding to that question being put to him. And I can't remember the full quote of what he says, mm-hmm. but it's like, and they've got to go and play this team and we've got to play that team. And I tell you what, I would love it if we beat them and so on. He'd like, he'd let Ferguson get to him is the thing. Okay. Um, right. That's why it's embarrassing is because it was a public display of losing the mental, losing the mind game to Alex Ferguson. Yeah. It's why Fergie that- got that reputation as, of being the master of the mind game is because yeah. he made Kevin Keegan explode on television. And then, and then Rafa Benitez later on, kind of the same yes. thing where he has the list of facts. And that yeah. one was another one that was sort of like, I see what he's trying to do here. It is not playing the way he had hoped. Fact.
I've got two quick ones for you. Mm-hmm. Um, Arta Boric, have you seen this? Arta Boric in goal for Southampton. Um, receives yes. the ball and he tries to drag, drag back and then he tries to turn against Olivier Giroud and mm-hmm. both moves don't come off, right? He looks like not a footballer trying those moves. So Giroud just tackles him and scores and it is the, it, it's the most I've ever seen a goalkeeper look like he can't play football. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's the worst one. I'm trying to think of other ones. Like the only other one that comes to mind is Jens Lehmann getting beaten to a ball and then and then feigning injury and diving. That's pretty <laughs> embarrassing, but maybe not quite with the ramifications of the Arthur Boric one. It also occurs to me Kevin Keegan doesn't qualify because uh, on field is what Matt asks. So oh, apologies for that. But okay. Diana Ross occurred on the field, so that one counts. <laughs> How about as well Rivaldo? Have you? Said, I can't remember which World Cup this is. I want to say it's the '98 World Cup where Rivaldo's in the corner. Stop me if any of this sounds familiar. And I think, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone yeah, yeah. Sort of, no, you're right. This is the winner. Turkey, maybe it is. Someone kicks the ball at him, and he just collapses as if he's being like punched in the face. I think trying to get the other yeah. player a red card or something, right? He kicks into his foot. Yeah, I think it's Hassan Shash is the one taking it. I could be wrong on that one, uh, but yeah. And then it hits his face or it hits his foot, and then he acts as though it's been kicked deliberately yes. into his face and falls over. Yep. So maybe Rivaldo's our winner here. Um, yeah, I think so because the player does get a red card, right? I don't know. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure the player gets sent off for malicious conduct, and that's no. why it's even more disgraceful. Oh. I would, we might. Have, I don't know if we're going to have to add an addendum here again, but I. I think I am correct in saying that he gets sent off for that. I will look this up, and you will hear me come in with the answer right All about right. now. Okay, this is future better informed Daryl here with the facts. So it was 2002. It was the 2002 World Cup not 98. It was Rivaldo. It was Brazil versus Turkey. And it was Hakan Unsal who kicked a ball at Rivaldo as he was about to take a corner kick. Um, It hit him in the leg and Rivaldo clutched his face and went down. Unsal got a second yellow and was sent off. So it wasn't a refereeing mistake. He got the yellow for kicking the ball at Rivaldo. Rivaldo just kind of oversold it. So still embarrassing, but Rivaldo did go on to win the World Cup that year. So, you know, not so bad. All right. <laughs> uh, well, until that happens, uh, should we uh, answer Michael Hastings' black question? I've got one more for you, though. I've oh, got okay. one more for you. Graham Pohl, World Cup 2006. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, the three yellows? Yes. So it's Croatia versus Australia. Graham Pohl gives Josip Simunic three yellow cards. And in many ways, it's not the third yellow card that is the big, dis- the big embarrassment. It's the fact that Pohl gave Simunic the second yellow card and then just carried on, right? He didn't give him a second yellow card and then the red, which you're supposed to give. Um, the only upside here is Paul really took full responsibility and owned it. He said, there was nothing that made me do it. It was just a complete basic error on my part. What I did is I marked, when you write in the referee's book, you mark number three, the player's number, that was Simunich's number. Um, I put it in the wrong column. So normally you would put three in the yellow column. Then when you go to put three in the yellow column, you see, oh, there's two threes there. I give him a red card, right? You keep track of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, he put it in the wrong column, so he didn't realize that he should have given Simunich a red card. And then he figures it out once he gets the third. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the title of Graham Paul's autobiography? No. Seeing Red. (laughs) (laughs) That I remember. That's why I'll forever remember that story. (laughs) It should have been third time lucky. Um, (laughs) Final question of today comes from Michael Hastings Black. We did have another question. We're going to have to save it for another day because I think we've run long here. But today's today's final question comes from Michael Hastings Black. Um, Has the U.S. men's national team ever had a Gerard Lampard conundrum like the three 
Lions. So before we answer this, please, Taylor, indulge me and just let me give mm-hmm, a quick explanation please. of what the Gerard Lampard conundrum is. By pure coincidence, um, I read Fabio Capello explain what the conundrum was uh, very, very recently. Um, so the, essentially, the idea is that Gerard and Lampard couldn't play together in central midfield for England and multiple managers still tried to make them play together. And Capello's um, uh, sort of summation of it was... They're basically the same player. They they like to do the exact same things. Um, and really, you should only have one of them. But if you try to drop one of them for another midfielder, none of those other midfielders are anywhere close to being as good as them. Okay. Yeah, and, th- that, that makes sense. Yeah, because they both like to be in midfield and sort of uh, control the ball, but then get forward and arrive late in the box and be involved in the attack. So you really can't ask one of them to stay home because you nullify their game. Uh, and so it was always impossible to have a functional midfield with two players who wanted to do the exact same thing. But you also, they were too good and the players who replaced them were not good enough to drop either of them. So Michael's question is, and this was a thing that plagued England for like, at least two World Cups and yeah. probably one or two Euros, right? It was a real problem for England. Um, has the US ever had a similar problem? So my my gut answer here is to say not really. Um, Daryl, I'm interested to hear if you if you disagree or if you have some clear ones. I struggle to think of one mostly because we've just never had players that were like that next level caliber that you had to find a way to fit them in even if they were doing the same thing. I feel like we don't tend to have a lot of redundancy. The only thing that really came to my mind was goalkeepers, where there was a long period of time, especially with like Keller and Friedel, where you would just get the rotation of like, oh, this World Cup, it's Keller. Oh, this World Cup, it's Friedel. Oh, yeah. it's Keller again. Like, that's the only thing where like we had so many good goalkeepers, but we could only play the one. Uh, but I don't even know if that necessarily answers Matt, uh, excuse me, Michael's question. Uh, so, so I'm wondering if you have some ideas. Well, so I would agree that th- that goalkeeper situation with Keller and Friedel, where Steve Samson went back and forth and back and forth, before deciding on Keller for the 98 World Cup, right? And then Friedel won out in 2002. And then Friedel retired from international football to give Keller the gloves back again in 2006. I would agree that that's the closest thing we've got, even though it's not exactly what Michael was asking about. Mm-hmm. Um, the If we have to go with like a two, two outfield players type thing, I've got two nominations for you, mm-hmm. but I think they both got solved, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Bradley and Jermaine Jones might okay. be the closest thing that we have, right? And that they're both all action midfielders who like to be all over the place. And similar to Gerard and Lampard, um, neither of them really wanted to stay home, right? I think that kind of was at least a talking point or an issue for a long time. But I went back and looked and uh, Bob Bradley solved this problem in 2011, like the year he was fired. But at that Gold Cup, he played um, a midfield two of Bradley and Jones, but he did his 4-2-2-2 thing, right? So essentially, he asked both Bradley and Jones to stay home um, and let the wingers and the two centre forwards do most of the attacking. So he solved it by telling them both to hold back a little bit, rather than saying, uh, one stays, one goes, and you guys can alternate. That's interesting. I forget that Bradley was that sort of roaming midfielder yeah. who could do a lot of do do a lot of different things. That's why he appealed to uh, to Roma. Yep. So yeah, that's that's a really good point, Daryl. Good call there. And then Jurgen Klinsmann, I think, struggled with this, especially towards the end. But in the middle, at the 2014 World Cup, he solved that problem by introducing Kyle Beckham into the equation. Right. Mm-hmm. So whereas uh, Bob Bradley had both of them stay home in 2011, he didn't get to take Jones, I don't think, to the 2010 World Cup. I think he was injured, right? Um, in 2014, Klinsmann had Kyle Beckerman at sort of the base of the midfield. And then Jones and Bradley, and I think Bedoya was usually the third other guy. Those, those three were like sort of absolved of some, some defensive responsibility 
ability because Kyle Beckerman was the guy that was always there to stop things coming through the middle. So two US managers, it, it is a conundrum, but they mostly managed to solve it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so that, is, that's the one. Do you have another one as well? Donovan and Dempsey. Yeah. I think, that was the one that I was like, I, I remember it being sort of like, and then you have Beasley in there as well. And it's like, well, all of them can play on the wing, but how do you fit them all in there? Well, I would phrase it differently. I would say for both of them, for Donovan and for Dempsey, they would probably both tell you that their best position is underneath a striker. Yeah. Right? Donovan would love, love to play underneath a striker. Dempsey definitely loves to play underneath a striker. That's their favorite position. And again, Bob Bradley solved it for us. Um, by doing the sort of empty bucket four two two two, where he had Donovan and Dempsey play essentially right wing and left wing, but then gave them license to drift in field when the team attacked. So it, I think it was a conundrum that, that essentially Bob Bradley solved. So Bob Bradley is a genius? Is that what I'm hearing I mean, from you? I mean, kind of. I would not have fired him in 2011. Let's put it that way. Uh, no arguments here. Yeah. Um, I- uh, I found myself like trying to make other ones work, and what I what I kept coming across is like we basically have the opposite problem of we have one very good player who we could play in two positions. That seems to be <laughs> more often the case with the U.S. national team, like Fabian Johnson being the very uh, good representation of that. I, I am excited for the day when we have too many good players in one position. I guess that is it, right? The thing that the U.S. ends up doing is playing mm-hmm. someone slightly out of position just to get them on the field because the the option behind because there's no depth at that position right so you end up filling in yeah i mean yeah it's that is usually the case is oh josie althador is injured so now clint dempsey is our 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 number nine but that's not what he wants to be doing yeah fabian johnson could be left back but could be left midfield but could be right midfield uh like yeah so you usually have a player who could do a couple different things being forced into one other thing that maybe doesn't work as well that seems to be the common problem for the u.s national team at least right now that makes sense to me. All right, I feel like we have answered that question to the best of our abilities, but I would love to hear from people if they think there's a Gerard Lampard-style mm-hmm. conundrum that the U.S. men's national team has had. Please tweet at us at Total Soccer Show or email us, contact at TotalSoccerShow.com. Let us know um, what you think. If there's any that really catch our eye, maybe we'll bring them up um, on future shows. I would be okay with that. And I would also welcome people like, like Joe Lowry probably has an answer to this one. That is... like. England are a better national team than the United States, uh, especially historically, especially in some of the areas we're talking about. And I do wonder if there are like U.S. national team equivalent ones of like Sasha Kleshton and somebody else never fit in. Like if there's like maybe lower tier ones that didn't matter as much, but we couldn't figure out how to make these two like players who would have otherwise been on the roster fit within a, a given roster. So they just didn't. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like maybe Kleshton and Farhar, but for, yeah. I, I feel like it's more of a, a Klinsman personality situation than it is Agreed. a tactical problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, probably so. <laughs> Um, okay, so thank you to everybody for the questions. Thank you, I think, to Sunderland till I die. I'm going to keep binging it, even though I oh, really, I think I made clear I that it. I have my concerns about that series, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, I have concerns about the ownership group. I love the documentary. I think it's great. All right. I think I, I'd give it like three stars out of five. That's where I'm at. Five out of five for me. Five out of five. Mm-hmm. Maybe five and a half out of five. Fair enough. It's no devs. Put it that way. It's no devs. That means nothing to me, so I, I, I agree. It's no better call Saul? Yeah. Eh, maybe better than better call Saul. No, yeah. it's not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, wouldn't, I, I love me some Bob Odenkirk. All right. One more time. Thank you to Charlie Methven for being so entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you, Taylor Rockwell, for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. And listeners, uh, be sure to pay attention to Charlie Methven's upper lip. It doesn't move. (laughs) Listeners, thank you for listening. Taylor's right. Take a look at that. We will talk to you again tomorrow. 